Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. We are recording this live, so there may be some audience noise. People can applaud if you'd like. (laughs) Uh, We are here at Shalem College, where students study the great ideas and books of Western and Jewish thought in small seminars led by master teachers. Our students learn to read deeply, ask good questions, and appreciate complexity. They also learn to speak and most of all listen, respectfully, a skill this country desperately needs right now. Our students aim to become the best versions of themselves and to become shalem, which is Hebrew for whole or complete, which is a task for a lifetime, but we like to think we hope our students get started. So I want to welcome everyone. Today is March 13th, 2023, and I have two guests. The first is author and neuroscientist Patrick House. He was here on the program in December of 2022, talking about his book, 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. That book is framed around a one-page paper in Nature from 1998, a paper that describes surgery on a patient named Anna who was having uh, seizures, and the surgery was an attempt to, uh, to stop those seizures. Patrick, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you. My second guest is Yitzhak Fried, professor of neurosurgery and psychiatry and behavioral, biobehavioral sciences in the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and professor of neurosurgery at Tel Aviv Medical Center and Tel Aviv University Sackler Faculty of Medicine. Yitzhak is one of the authors of the paper in Nature that I mentioned, and uh, you were in the operating room. Is that correct? Are you one of the surgeons? Yeah, I'm, I, I was the, the surgeon. Uh, in fact, uh, the scene itself is not in the operating room. It's actually uh, following an operation uh, because these patients, uh, in order to find out where the seizures are coming from, we have to implant electrodes. And these electrodes are, are present, you know, there for a period of like seven days because we are one thing we are waiting for the patient to have spontaneous seizures to find out where the seizures are coming from. At the same time, we can apply electrical stimulation to try and get a map of the brain, meaning we want to identify areas which are important for language and for important for other cognitive function so that we can avoid those in the final surgery. So the, the scenery is the patient is in the room Okay, the electrodes are in the brain. Of course, everything is closed. There's a big dressing. And we apply electrical uh, current to certain areas to see where functions are, where various functions are. So in that particular case, we're actually interested in, in language. So we were showing the, uh, we were showing Anna, you know, she's a lovely 16-year-old, but she had very bad seizures. We showed her pictures of like a horse and, and, and basically asking her to name those and applying electrical stimulation to find out if when we interrupt this function, that means that that area is very critical for that function. So she was looking at, at a picture, I think it was a fork, and we pushed the button, introducing electrical stimulation, and then she burst into an amazing laughter and we said, just a minute, why are you laughing? And she said, don't you guys see this, this, this fork is, is, is very funny. That what's going on here, really? So next we had her read a whole paragraph, I remember very well, about a rainbow. And she's reading this paragraph, push the button, electricity goes in, and she burst out laughing. She said, oh, why are, are you laughing? And she says, well, don't you guys see this stupid paragraph about the rainbow? Isn't it funny? And this was real laughter. It wasn't like a mechanical laughter. She was, in fact, laughing so hard that at some point I was concerned that she's not going to stop laughing. So finally, we're just standing around, pushing the button, 
And she started laughing hysterically. She says, why are you laughing? She says, you guys are so funny. So that triggered something. It was like a unique observation. And the question was, you know, what is the meaning of that, right? We've just heard about this strange surgery. Uh, Patrick shared with me a clip of Anna, who uh, you can see her dress, the dressing. Uh, if you remember from the first episode with Patrick, as a non, you know, usually say it's not brain surgery. This is brain surgery. This is crazy stuff. Uh, Patrick pointed out to me there are no pain sensors in the brain, so that the surgery, the opening of the brain, there's some anesthesia applied. I assume. Yeah, yeah. Those, the, in, in this particular case, there are, of course, cases where we can do mapping in the operating room, where I can do mapping in the operating room because the brain is a painless tissue, right? The master of pain is painless. Because it has That's, no uh, thing to send the signal to. It's the brain. The brain is painless. So you can touch <laughs> it. You can. In fact, the only painful stuff is really the, the skin and the covering of the, the brain. The brain itself, you know, you can man- manipulate and the patient can be awake. And, but in this particular case, the electrodes were implanted because we needed to do very long monitoring outside of the operating room. So, so Patrick sent me this uh, film, a film clip of Anna. And when Yitzchak says that she was really laughing, she is breaking a gut. Uh, she just, she can't get over how funny this is, but what is this? And that's part of what uh, part of what we're here to talk about. I also want to add: there's a forthcoming episode of Econ Talk that is coming out soon on lobotomy, and Walter Freeman, who was a pioneer of lobotomy and defended it until his dying day. But you're doing something like lobotomy, a little better than Walter Freeman. No, no, no. I, I want to make it very clear. <laughs> I guess this was a challenge. Go ahead. It is completely, absolutely different, right? Uh, Explain. Meaning that, you know, here we, we're trying to identify an area, you know, which is causing, you know, a very severe illness, which is, in fact, life-threatening. And experience, you know, over, over many years has shown that some of this Seizures are coming from a very clear, you know, point sometimes in the brain. It can be a little tumor. It can be a vascular malformation. It can be some kind of a scar. But sometimes you cannot really see it, even on an MRI. And you need to find the electricity, where is the actual source, and then removing this tissue. So it's, it's completely different, uh, totally different. And I think it took some time, really, to get away you know, from this dark period, I think, in, in, in the history of Where medicine. People yeah. just poked around and hoped for good things. Right. Patrick? What Itzhak does is more like high-performance, like F1 racing. And lobotomy <laughs> is a demolition derby, right? These are, you're, these are very different there things. There you got it. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, Fair enough. Yeah. I apologize. Um, Patrick, why did this paper captivate you, and why did you use it to frame your book the way you did? You know, I, I don't even think I've told you this. Is I, I used to have the paper framed. I had printed it out and framed it at some point um, in my career. So when when I was a like a when I was in grad school, right? I was getting my PhD, and I was studying a mind control parasite. This this little parasite that gets into a mouse brain and makes it um, lose its fear and gain an attraction to a cat. And its its natural phenomenon is that it has to get from one cat to another cat, and so. To me, there is something beautiful about the fact that a tiny single-cell protozoan can nestle itself into this painless brain and alter things and change things and change preferences. Specifically, that's the thing I was most interested in, changing preferences. It changes the mouse's preference for the, the smell and odors of a cat. And what I found so beautiful about this paper when I came across it was... It seemed as if in the same way that this parasite kind of took over free will or took over the will of the organism to kind of shape or change or alter its preferences, it seemed like what Yitzhak was able to do by pushing the button was in a very local way change Anna's preferences, change this girl's preferences towards what she finds funny and what she doesn't find funny. 
And what I found terrifying, if I may, also about the study, was that it made me question every time I've ever laughed, right? So people here in this room are laughing in response to, or earlier, even in the audience, people have laughed in response to the retelling of the story of that surgery, of her laughing, which means in 1997, Itzhak pushed a button. Anna laughs. People in the, opera, or people in the hospital laugh. There's a digital recording of that, which it gets played to you, Russ, which you then describe in words, which makes people here laugh, right? If, you're, if you trace the causal chain back, what really is the difference between the electrode causing Anna to laugh and all of this causal chain that leads now to us 25 years later also laughing? These are the kinds of questions I really like to ask. Like, why is it different when a protozoan parasite that nestles itself into a neuron can change or shape will versus when an electrode can change or shape will? I see no real difference. But it, it's somewhat disturbing yes, to, to, to imagine that, that that's the case, right? And it raises the question of what does it mean to laugh, to do, be sad, to... And you open... Early in the book, um, Patrick tells the story of being visited by a vacuum repair person, comes to his house to fix his vacuum. I remember the story because I've read it very recently. Do uh-huh. you remember it? I do, I Please do. Please tell it. Uh, I went to the vacuum repair uh, place. Uh, so I was, I was in Palo Alto. My, I did grad school at, at Stanford, and there was a, I lived in a house with a lot of people. This vacuum cleaner repairman, um, we, someone had dropped off this vacuum. I had to go pick it up. And as I do, and I walk in, the guy is on the phone and he just kind of has the phone up by his ear and he lowers it and says, like, who are you? What do you want? And I'm like, oh, I'm picking up a vacuum. He's like, what, what do you do? Just in this kind of like friendly confrontational way. Um, uh, you can be both. And, and I say, I'm a neuroscientist. And he says, he goes back on the phone. He's like, oh, great. This guy's a neuroscientist. He asks me, can you help my brother? He's an addict. He's in and out of rehab. What can you do? And I said, uh, uh, I'm not really sure. Addiction is complicated. It could be a social thing. There's probably some mechanisms down in the weeds, but context matters. You know, like, I don't really, I can't help. And his response was, I work with vacuums because I can fix them. Why do you work with brains if you can't fix them? And that, that was a profound moment for me as a, as a laboratory scientist, uh, you know, Yitzhak does actually fix them. <laughs> I just kind of theorize about them. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cute little kind of anecdote about, which to me has relevance to kind of where we are in the history of our understanding of the brain. Like where we would put ourselves if we had a timeline of other scientific disciplines of physics and mathematics and you know, we have neuroscience also. We, we have our own little band. And the question is, where are we on the kind of path to discovery? What do we know? And I kind of believe that we're still in the Babylonian era, kind of looking up at the stars, um, knowing where they'll be, but not why. And, you know, I think there's something really profound about the fact that we, other than kind of finding a source in the brain that is causing someone pathologic harm. There aren't that many pure, clean cures for a lot of diseases of the brain. And when you ask a neuroscientist, for example, give us an explanation, give us a full theory of a basic emotion, like the joy that Anna felt alongside the laughter. Ask any neuroscientist, what is joy? They'll change the subject or, or ramble in some autopilot way about some beautiful and, you know, all I, all I am is a series of anecdotes, right? That's because I don't have an actual E equals MC squared <laughs> answer to anything. Um, but, but, that, but what I find so beautiful is that that is data. That, that, you know, in the way that I kind of think about, um, so physics has, let's say, the, like the Large Hadron Collider, right? They can study, they can dig a tunnel and spend billions of dollars and spend hundreds of PhDs and years and study a fundamental feature of the way that the universe is constructed. And if they had built that tunnel a couple decades ago, or if they had built it a couple centuries ago, or if they built it a couple centuries from now, 
that same Higgs boson, that same particle they're interested in, it would still be there. They would still be able to capture it, right? Physics has this almost, uh, atemporality is the wrong word, but it's like almost a timelessness. That gravity was the same now as it was 5,000 years ago. And if, and if people had been around then and, and solved it, then they, they would have come to the same conclusion. What I find interesting and almost kind of um, tragic about the study of consciousness and in neuroscience is that we're losing what might be unique data sets, which are what's happening on the inside of everybody's heads, right? We're losing these every generation, every, every person that disappears. That's a irreproducible data set that we will never have again. And so there's a way in which when, when neuroscience is progressing, and, and when I talk about the kind of, not the failure, but where we are in our study of the brain, there's actually, I, I feel this kind of internal urgency that we should be going faster. Because unlike physics, which can, you can discover things at any time you want and it's going to be the same, there could be a, a mind, a, 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 a conscious person who whose brain will never be replicated again. And they might live now in some obscure poverty. And there's something is happening on the inside of their mind that is the secret or key to it all. And we don't find them. We don't know, we don't even know how to kind of keep track or catalog what's happening on the inside of their head. Yes, sir. Come on. Well, I think that we live in the real world, and, and in, in the real world, to some extent, you know, brain stimulation is, is, is here. I mean, it's here. First of all, it's in medicine, and it's present already in medicine in, in many areas. It is, for instance, you can stimulate a certain center in Parkinson's patient and actually achieve changes like, you know, profound motor changes which are actually easy to measure and, and, and actually see. Yes. Now, where it, it gets maybe a bit more tricky is really the, the cognitive functions that are not so easy to, uh, to actually measure. Okay? And, and what you're talking really about is, is what we accumulate through life and becoming a memory, right? some big memory pool that maybe one day we can download it into a com com computer and it will live after us, right? I mean, sort of a... a, a question I have right here. <laughs> okay, so the, the answer is not yet, okay? <laughs> not yet. However, you know, for instance, if you're talking about memory, you know, first, you know, we come back to, to the 1940s uh, to a neurosurgeon mm -hmm. named Wilder Penfield, and, and I, I have seen it also, you know, stimulates an area and suddenly a memory comes and, and a patient just expresses a memory. And these are sort of anecdotal things, but they are very real. You know, I have, I have had, you know, patients that are stimulated and suddenly they say, oh, I have a memory of Led Zeppelin, or I have a memory of Bohemian Rhapsody, or I can hear music, okay? And we haven't even touched upon will yet, because, you know, we're keeping it, you know, for the I last, for, yeah. for the main course. <laughs> this is just the, you know, just the upper teeth at this point, right? But definitely, you know, being able to trigger memories, but not in a, in a consistent way. We, we, we don't really un we understand how memories are incorporated, you know, and how they are actually consolidated and stored. And, and, and we can affect it with electrical stimulation. So in the real world, you know, we are dealing with millions and millions of people which are slowly disappearing in de de degenerative diseases like Alzheimer, and the mind just dissipates. You know, memory, you know, for recent event goes out first, right? And then, you know, the entire, you know, human mind eventually di di dissolves, you know. Can we affect it? Uh, do we understand it? I mean, obviously, there is a lot of, in addition to, to the philosophical understanding of where we are with respect to physics, uh, and, you know, my own view is that we are where classical physics was in the end of the 19th century. We haven't yet gotten to, you know, re relativity. We haven't yet gotten to quantum. We are, we are not there yet. But we got pressing needs, you know. We got people, you know, with neurological disorders, which are comprising, especially with aging, you know. That's uh, 
Well, we are. But you are, you said not yet. So you, you think that we will make inexorable progress toward understanding. Yeah, no, I, I think we, we will, but I just wonder if it's going to be a linear process, you know, just accumulating of more and more and more data, or, you know, I, I don't really, actually, when I look at the last 20 years, I don't see like a major breakthrough. I see a lot of techniques, I see a lot of data, I see a lot of papers. There is no breakthrough in, 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 in the level of the breakthroughs that have been present in, in physics. A lot of promotions, though. Like, oh, yeah, right, yeah. A lot of good published papers. It's, yes. A lot of journals. More lot journals. journals more, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, talking about the journal, you know, that was, yeah, at that time I was still, you know, young and, and senseless. And I said, I have to really study to nature, okay? And, and everybody said, this is crazy. This is an N equal one, you know. What can you learn for an N equal one, okay? One data point. One data point, you know. So, and this was... The, I, I think the only paper which was uh, accepted on first round, you know, really. You know, reviewers today are terrible. Right? They give you a hell of a time and you have to go through, you know, torturous ways. This was accepted almost, you know, as is. Wow. Because people understood that there was something very special. And, you know, when I talked to Patrick about it, I uh, equated this type of observation, which are completely haphazard, to in lo looking at a bubble chamber and, you know, once in a while, you know, a particle goes through. And if you are zoning in on it, you may have an insight. You know, that, that happened. That was completely chance. Yeah. And, and don't let the brevity of the paper huh? fool. Don't let the brevity of the paper mislead anyone. I think the structure of DNA, the double helix paper, is only two pages also in nature. So th there's a kind of inverse correlation between the length of the paper and the interesting well, that's for sure. of the... Uh, uh, one more thing about Anna, because I want to try to um, bring out a little bit in a, in a richer way the 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 puzzle and the um, aha moment that that each of you had. So when I watch a Marx Brothers movie, if it's one of the better ones, I will laugh. So the question is is Try to use that. I, the way I understand what you're saying is that, so the Marx Brothers movie is somehow, is it creating the exact same kind of electrical stimulation that Yitzchak did mechanically? And if so, how? Or is are those two totally different things that are not related? And this is sort of a outside the box external things. So just talk about that for a minute. Yes, uh, Patrick and then Yitzchak. Yeah, I mean, so to me, the my immediate wonder, and I still have not been able to resolve this question, is every single time that I laugh, and then I ask myself why. I don't need a surgical team asking me why. I ask why. Um, I my my, and I don't know if this is a peculiar quirk to my brain, but I always have some sort of reason. I I can never think of a time when my brain is comfortable admitting that it doesn't know why. It always comes up with something, something plausible. And to me, the study really made me question, how do I know that any time I've ever laughed, whether or not it's for the genuine reason that I thought that I laughed? And then anytime you did anything other than laugh, and then you would can, fall in the same category. This is why it's so beautiful. This is why I find it so, you know, the, the best kind of scientific results are about one very tiny thing, which is actually about everything, right? This is actually about everything, which is how do we ever know that when we give these kind of after-the-fact reasons, um, they're for the right, the, the right reason. And, and you know, I, I, I'm kind of on nominal book tour, right? And I gave this talk, uh, a lecture uh, about this book, and there was an actress in the audience. And the actress uh, came up afterwards and told me that the, the question of the, at the time was, um, will robots laugh? And if... If, or could there be like a robotic comedian or an AI comedian? And if they did, uh, would we believe it was kind of similar to the way that we laughed? Or is it more similar to maybe like a robot ballerina standing in point, which we don't find interesting because they were designed to stand in point? So there's something different about the, the um, pain and suffering when you applaud like a, a Bolshoi ballerina. Um, 
that's different than if a, a, a who's standing on point because you know that it, you know the, our, the human joint was not meant to be at that angle. And when we laugh, when we hear someone tell a joke, Marx Brothers, you might be laughing at the physical comedy, right? Let's say it was a physical comedy aspect. Someone gets slapped or trips. Something simple. We're laughing in part because we know that they feel pain, right? There's an implicit understanding that. Uh, they're human. They were. They 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 have the same constraints that we do. Um, and there. The, so this actress came up to me and said, "You know what I find really interesting about this Anna's story is that she often has to fake laugh. This actress has to, for her job, pretend right. to laugh. Another level. I know. Yeah, it gets more complicated. <laughs> and so and it, it does because she said, so I have to train myself to laugh, which is kind of you might imagine." You know, do we want to say that the script is the same as Itzhak with the uh, electrode? Is it, it is causing her to laugh? No, of course not. Um, but what I found really fascinating is she said that when she remembers having laughed, so this is after the fact, she calls up her memory, and her memory is a combination of real laughs from real life and fake ones from her job as an actress. She feels equal joy in the memory of that. Mm. And so what I find really compelling and fascinating about the study as well is that Anna felt, you know, it's this tiny phrase at the end of one of the sentences in there, is that she felt alongside, alongside the mechanical act of laughter, she felt joy and mirth. And what I find really profound is that she, the, the answers that she gave were actually quite plausible answers. The answers that she gave, if you think about it, they were not random. They were not like something about, oh, the moon landing is funny. They were not, you know, they, they were about things that she could perceive. They were about the people in the room, the objects in the room, the content of the stories that she was reading. Which means that the answers were slightly more plausible than random, right? They were about related objects. And there's something really interesting about the fact that, you know, I, in the book even, I call it a lie. I call, what, I call what she's saying a confabulation in some sense. I say it's incorrect. But I, there's actually a 20th way, <laughs> perhaps, of looking at it where you could actually say that maybe, you know, and this goes back, I think, to the Penfield studies, right? Which is like, if you stimulated the part of the brain that was responsible for feeling rage, for example, and then you showed someone a picture of a fork, they might be angry at the fork, I don't know if that's true. You'll know better than me. But they, or if you, if you stimulate a part of the brain and just there's a person in front of them, they might lash out to that person, right? They're, they're going to apply their artificial emotion to anything that's in front of them. And so maybe it's actually not incorrect what she's feeling. Maybe that's just the basis of how emotions get applied to things in front of us, which makes it even more terrifying to me because it means that... Um, not only is it the the reasons we give for why we do things, it might even be the reasons we give for like why we like things, why we do anything. It's tough being a human. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, initially, when I when I wrote the, the the paper, I said, well, you know, we managed to introduce the motor program of laughter. We introduced the emotional, you know, part, and she filled in every time with a cognitive ex explanation. Okay. But later, when I, when I was thinking about it, you know, it, it really brings back the theory of emotion by, by James. And actually, look at, at an emotion as, as a reaction, essentially, to a physical body, bodily sensation, okay? And I think that's, you know, quite, you know, quite an interesting angle to look at it. And in fact, you know, uh, this, you know, movie which you guys, you know, watch was essentially part of a B BBC, you know, program that they did on, on humor. And, you know, I, and then, you know, we actually brought her afterwards, you know, after the operation that she was cured and all that. And she was actually saying something that I didn't even notice at the time. Just looking at this over and over again, and she said something. She said, it was funny because I laughed. She said it at one point, you know, I missed that for like several times that I watched it, okay? So there was something there, you know, along what you, you're essentially saying, you know, when your actress is laughing, he actually 
is the funny sensation is generated maybe on top of that, you know, which can bring us, you know, to, to question whether this is really an afterthought or, you know, where, you know, free will is an afterthought, but we'll talk about it later. No, I, think we should get to the, I think we should get to the main course because I, I want to talk about, I want to talk about free will. There's a, there's a line in, in your book, Patrick, that, that I've actually been thinking about, but I didn't realize it. Just to give you an example of these kind of strange ways we fool ourselves. And I had a thought recently. I interviewed, um, it happens every once in a while. I interviewed Sam Harris recently on Talk, and we talked about free will. And Sam doesn't believe in free will. And I started this thought experiment. You know, if you go back to the Big Bang, when all of matter in the universe is compressed into a, a point, a tiny, tiny point, and it expands outward. And the net result is us. We're just in the, in the view that there's no free will. It's just, you know, it's all built into that little dot. What's built into it is that you're going to come to Shalem College on a evening to hear a talk. It includes Anna laughing at the fork and describing it as that's what made her laugh. And it, it's a very, um, it's an interesting thought experiment that that we have no no volition whatsoever. In fact, all we have is the story we tell ourselves, right? Now, do you, do you think that's true? And it doesn't matter? I mean, it's fun. I like thinking about it, but does it matter at all? Yes, Scott? Well, you know, the question is, uh, you know, let's bring it down to elect electricity and take the position that we are essentially uh, an electrochemical machine, okay? Nice thought, right? Yeah, beautiful. Inspiring. So the question is really, you know, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, correlation but between will and other things, you know, other parameters that we can measure. But the question is, do we have any causal, you know, thing? And, and this brings me back to another, you know, bubble chamber. And that was when I was, you know, a resident. And we're doing this, the same thing with a different patient. And when we uh, stimulated in a certain area, you know, she said, um, you know, I, I, she was very verbal, which was really uh, wonderful. She said, I, I feel like I have an urge to move my hand, she said. So just by applying electrical stimulation to this area, now this is a very particular area. There's an, a first name and a family name. It's called the supplementary motor area, Okay. And that area, you know, when it is removed on both sides, you know, people don't have any initiative for anything. In fact, when you remove it on one side, they temporarily have this type, you know, of thing. And in fact, you know, John Eccles, in his book with Karl Popper uh, about the, you know, the, the, the dual model, he put the SMA right there at the top. Because he said uh, SMA supplement. supplementary motor area, every volitional act really starts in this area. That's what he said. But we find that by stimulation, this area, we actually create a sensation of will. So, right. So, are we just puppet? And we haven't touched upon libet yet. But oh yeah, we're gonna. I want to talk about <laughs> libet actually. And Patrick. what about the uh, guilt as well? The guilt, of course. You know, I love this. you know the. We have a different story, the counterpart to laughter, which is guilt. But what do you want to talk about first, guilt or, or will? I think it's a beautiful you are story. In, in Jerusalem. Let's so. talk about guilt. Yeah. Guilt, of course. You know, <laughs> We are in the place where guilt was born. So, in any way. So, 20 years later, you know, after this first you know, story... Another uh, young woman appears in my, my office and tells me the following story. says, you know, a year ago I, I came back from school and suddenly I had this um, bad feeling like malaise. I felt guilty and I didn't know why, you know, I was um, feeling guilty. And I thought maybe I offended somebody at school. And in short, this thing kept repeating over and over. And for some, you know, there was some thought about maybe this being a psych psychological problem. Uh, but but after a year, she had a major uh, seizure. 
and that triggered an MRI. And in the MRI, there was a little uh, tumor, benign tumor, but you were sitting right in a certain position. I wouldn't bore you with the details, but it's sitting just against an area which is associated in brain models with depression, okay? It's just next to, to it. So anyhow, we ended up, it, it, this was actually epileptic attacks, uh, bouts of electrical ac- activity. And it's only, you know, later when actually I went in with a, you know, with a laser fiber and actually eliminated this area, especially the interface of this tumor with that area called area 25, doesn't matter that she, that this episode went away, essentially. So here again, electrical activity is associated and causal, causally related to a feeling of guilt for which an explanation is thought. And the same way that the laughing girl looked for explanation for laughter, she looks for explanation for this primary sensation of guilt. Which to me is, you said earlier, do you want to talk about will or guilt? To me, it's the same, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm, I'm curious even why you uh, disentangled those. Like, to me, this is still the same question. When we're, no, true. all the things we're feeling... Right. I mean, I it's I I find it actually quite comforting uh, that when I have a thought that I don't want to have that I can think to myself sometimes I actually have a small kind of uh, BCI brain stimulator that I look at sometimes as my totemic object to remind myself that it's just electricity at the end of the day, that whatever it is that I'm feeling that I, I could if I needed to call up Itzhak and be like, can you please thread it through and, <laughs> you know, stimulate that part of the brain. I don't wish to feel guilt anymore, for example. Or grief or all the human emotions that make life meaningful, rich. Um, you know, the Buddhists would tell you that all that, that's just, they didn't call it electric, but they just said just noise passing, just, you know, passing through randomly. You should not let it go. Just a thought. I have trouble with that idea. Uh, but but it's a, it's not it's very similar to what you just said. Yeah, I find it comforting, but the same I could I could easily see the other side where it's terrifying instead. And of course, a lot of times I'll feel sad, and I'll comfort myself. Say, oh, that's because of that thing I read a few minutes ago. I'm not really sad. I just read that sad thing, and it's still echoing. And I'm not sad. I'm happy. That was just a thing I read. I can put it down now, and it's, I don't have to be sad anymore. But of course, um, as you write in your book, we don't know why people are sad, really, right? <laughs> I have yet to hear a compelling explanation, like full <laughs> a full scientific explanation for that, that yeah. simple emotion. Yeah. Um, let's talk about artificial intelligence. Um, and, and I should just add that laughter is a really, we've, we've been talking about laughter we are the only creature that laughs. Hyena's laughter is not over. Uh, it's a sound that reminds us of human laughter. And um, Roger Scruton's book on human nature uh, reflects on this at some length. It's a very interesting and provocative, at least first take. I don't think it's decisive or, or complete, but you know, it's a um, it's a very uh, difficult thing to understand why we laugh. It's nothing to do with evolution. You have to tell some story. I think most people who, who um, are materialists would just say it's, a, it's an add-in to, to evolution. It just came along for the ride. It's gravy. It's not inherently related to survival. You could maybe tell some silly stories about it. I just feel like I have to get it in that um, I think Harpo says to Chico, can you, can you sail tomorrow? And Chico says, Greatest line of economics in any in any movie. If you pay us enough, we can sell yesterday. <laughs> so I mean, that gets at some of the great questions of of time that we were kind of getting at earlier. But human beings, we're the only creatures that can laugh. We are the, I think, the only creatures that have, as Harry Frankfurt said, desires about our desires. We don't just want stuff. We can, as you said, one of you said earlier, I don't like having that feeling. I, I wish I didn't have that thought, or I wish I. Didn't, but we can have those emotional thoughts. I can't imagine, which is not definitive, obviously, at all, 
But I can't imagine that artificial intelligence, ChatGPT, Sydney, Bing, whatever is the next version, could have laughter, could have sentience, and could have or could have consciousness. Do you agree or disagree? Yes, Scott. Well, I think I'm in no position to agree or disagree at this point. That's uh, because I don't think we really un- understand what what consciousness is. I mean, phenomenologically, the question is, how would you test something like like, like this? I mean, obviously, the, the Turing test is not good enough at this point. And what what kind of test are we going to use, really, to 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 make this kind of decision? that an entity in front of us is conscious or not conscious. That, that I think, is, you know, one of, one of the main uh, challenges. Patrick? Well, I mean, there's a, we have to have a serious conversation if it does end up true that these AIs are conscious, because that means also, like, the Japanese bidets are conscious. And <laughs> everything we interact with is conscious. And... There's a, there's a, there's going to be a reckoning, and we deserve our kind of Terminator fate. Um, <laughs> but like I, I, I actually agree on a, as a epistemological scientific level, we we don't have the tools to investigate whether or not something of is conscious in a way that we might not understand. My intuition is that they're not even close. Um, I think these things are are basically video games. They're trained like video games, and there's no different. They're kind of large if statements. Um, but it is quite true that we don't really know what, and we don't have a good formal definition of what a different kind of awareness, what a different kind of consciousness would look like. I mean, people have trouble enough asking about the, um, you know, all of the species on the planet that probably have some sort of tiered version of awareness or sentience or consciousness. We have trouble enough with the ones we're given let alone now we have to go create our own. So, you know, we don't even have consensus on the, the ones that are right in front of us. And, yeah, I, 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 I they're, they're not. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're just not yet. Um, you know, I, was, I once wrote this article where I was investigating um, in, there's a robotic soccer World Cup every, every year. Uh, they were just, they've been doing this for 20 years. Their goal is to eventually, but people think that it was interesting when they came for chess or they came for Go or various different board games. There is a concerted effort from hundreds of roboticists around the world. They've been doing it for 20 years. They're doing it every year to eventually be, make a robot better that can beat the World Cup champion in, in human, human So 11 soccer. robots would play... Uh, yes, they would okay. play by the same rules. They would have the same... Pain receptors, if they tweak an ankle or fake tweaking an ankle, whatever they do, uh, you know, I'm sure they would dive as well. Um, but, but I mean, you know, it's coming. Like everything we think of as kind of immune to the roboticists or the AI folk, they're, they're thinking about how to be better than humans. And I was speaking to uh, the head of Carnegie Mellon's team, and she, the robotic soccer team, and she said, you know, it's kind of, it's very difficult, in that, as in you as a robot, she as a roboticist was dedicating her career to making them. She said, but she said it's trivially easy to make a robotic soccer player. What I want to do is make a robotic soccer fan. <laughs> right? Which is, that's, and she's like, but that's impossibly hard. Like, you, how do you get a robot to, to like a retired robot that, that just sits and enjoys watching its team win? Because that would have to have the feeling of what it means to be a fan and watching and through, through observation alone actually getting enjoyment out of some arbitrary game that means nothing. You know, like, it's a... What do you a, mean it means nothing? Uh, what are you talking sorry. about, Badger? <laughs> that means, you know, that's set up as a set of arbitrary constraints to induce uh, happiness in, in the humans who watch them. That's what I mean by means nothing. <laughs> you know, uh, well, so, so, so there's this difference between creating the robot and creating the kind of thing with qualities that um, it seems so much harder. It, you know, it, it's, it's just so much harder. You, this is kind of the thing. Like, you can make a stand-up comedian robot, but can you make a robot audience? Right. Well, that's can you that. make a robot dream, right? 
Yeah. Can you make a robot dream? Absolutely. Yeah. But Android chips, so. But what? <laughs> Android chips. Yeah. I, I'd like you better to talk. This seems like a very um, silly question. And it's one of the reasons I like this question in, in Patrick's book. What's the difference between uh, we never got to it in our first conversation? And when I got when I finished that first that episode, I'm thinking, oh darn, I didn't get. It. So now we have my chance. Oh, no. What's the difference? <laughs> He's thinking, uh oh, trouble. It's going to be hard. What's the difference between a bowling ball and a pigeon? Oh. Now it seems pretty clear, but it's not so clear. So talk about it. Yeah. Um, as I heard it, this was a story told to me that you can. All of the difference between physics and biology can be entirely and utterly explained by going up to the roof of any building and taking a bowling ball and a pigeon of equal weight and dropping them both. <laughs> it's and a live pigeon, by the way. It's an alive pigeon. <laughs> it's a live bowling ball also. And yes, well, some people think so. Yeah. The panpsychist might. And so you can everything that you need about the division between physics and biology, physics and neuroscience, it is contained within the fact that you can, you know where the bowling ball is going to fall, and you just have no idea whatsoever what the pigeon's going to do, right? And and so as scientists, you want some sort of predictability. You want you want a model that explains things, and they're they're both subject to the same forces of gravity and the same physical forces that we all are. But somehow that pigeon, the configuration of that pigeon's atoms, we could even probably make the thought experiment like you know. It's not just the weight that's the same or the mass that's the same. It's the, you, you, you can apply as many similarities as you want to those two cases. That pigeon is just going to fly away and you have no idea where or why. And that's what we're trying to solve, right? You want to comment, Yitzchak, or do you want to just... I'm not sure about that? the pigeon, though. <laughs> I mean, you don't think that you had all the variables and you had access to every neuron in the pigeon's uh, brain that you could essentially assign uh, at least to have a statistical model and like in quantum you know mechanics maybe that that will you know gives you a dis distribution of the possibilities with probabilities right you 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 can you're say you're going to be in las, in las vegas but you're going to be a little bit more educated <laughs> It's you know. true. There are some things you could say something about. The pigeon is probably, unless its wings are clipped, not going to hit the ground, right? So you can say that the odds of it hitting the ground are extraordinarily low. Um, this, is the, this is the question about free will, right? Which is, this is back to your, Russ, your point. We started as a tiny little dot somewhere in the universe. It all exploded, and then we have all of us. You know, if we know enough about the pigeon, if we know enough about the every single, like, proton pump, and every single mitochondria and every single microtubule along a line within the pigeon's brain, could we then predict where it's going to go or know what it's going to do next? But isn't it also the case that we don't even we don't even have models of turbulence in like thermodynamic systems where we're we're not tracking every single molecule. We're saying something about the larger trend of heat or the larger trend of a gas. So if we can't even do that with kind of a closed system of a closed box with some gaseous particles, you know, this is the question. If, if we had access to the equivalent of every atom in that pigeon's brain and we knew the relevant causality between the interactions of those atoms, could we tell that it makes strange loops in the sky? I mean, the real answer is like, if this was a homing pigeon, it would, we do know where it would go eventually, right? Yeah. I, this program is called Econ Talk, so it's time to introduce a little bit of economics. Not much, but uh, F.A. Hayek in his Nobel address uh, made the point that macroeconomics is something like a pigeon. Basically, fundamentally, he was saying that his first analogy was actually to a sports team, and I think it was soccer. We're staying on the uh, or football, as it's often called. I, I may have been talking about American football. He said, can we predict who's going to win a football game? We're not very good at it. And, that, and one answer would be, we just don't have enough data. You know, if we knew what, how much sleep each player got and whether they'd had a fight with their spouse beforehand and what they ate for breakfast and what was on their mind and 
whether they had a tumor that had gotten a little bit bigger and therefore, et cetera, but they had tweaked their ankle on the stairs, then we could do it. And he said, but we're not close to that and we never will be. And therefore, we can't predict when the next recession is coming because it's a similar challenge. Instead of atoms, it's human beings. And we're all complicated, although sometimes we know that if you bail out Silicon Valley Bank, the odds of the next one have gotten a little bit higher. I'm pretty confident about that. Um, so we understand some principles of behavior. The, the bird will fly. It will not hit the ground, almost certainly, unless its wings are clipped. But beyond that, we are pretty much in the dark. And the, I think you could maybe think about the differences, um, different perspectives you could have on this. One view could say, it's just a matter of time. Oh, love. Not yet. Eventually, we'll get enough data and we'll be able to make these predictions. We'll understand where the pigeon's going. We'll understand when you're going to laugh next. Uh, I'll, I'll have enough sensory data to make those predictions. And the other view says, never. Never. Too complicated. Too much interaction. Too many, too many variables. What do you think? Well, I think, again, it's a, it's a practical question in the sense that, you know, how much information can you really get from the brain? You know, for instance, if you look at moving a little bit to a different sphere, if you look at uh, Neuralink, you know, Elon Musk uh, and the enterprise, you know, putting a, a little hole in the skull the size of a, of a dime and having a, a robot, mind you, implant a, a thousand hair-like electrodes, and you get a huge amount of in, in, information. The more information you can actually get, the, the better un understanding you may have. You ne may never reach, you know, that perfect, you know, total, absolute pigeon destiny, right? <laughs> the pigeon destiny will never know it for absolute sure, except for demise. But so, but but I think the the key thing is really information. How much information can we actually get from? Yeah, I think for me. I'm susceptible to Nassim Taleb's view, bigger data, big, bigger data, bigger mistakes, that there's so oh. much interaction that we are we're going to then be drawn into false correlations of, and be fooled into thinking we understand things we don't. I think that's fair to him. I'm not sure, but he'll, he'll let us know if we got it wrong. Patrick, do you want to comment? I mean, so one question is kind of why... <laughs> I guess one question I ask myself sometimes is why am I a neuroscientist? Why am I studying the brain? I don't, I would post Instead that. of vacuum repair. Instead of vacuum repair, right. Yeah. Um, I do kind of expect my next book to be maybe about like penguins or something so that I can answer any of the questions people ask me on book tour. Cause so far it's been, what is consciousness? What is free will? And I just desperately <laughs> wish I just like had taxidermied a pigeon or a penguin. And I just all about actual facts of the matter. <laughs> And they don't fly. It's fantastic. You don't it have any of the so easy. Issues. Yeah. Bowling ball and a penguin, you drop them, no difference. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I see two, you know, the, the way that your question is framed is, okay, I imagine there's two paths and uh, neuroscientists and scientists and mathematicians and everybody will be proceeding forward along this path of scientific discovery for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then at some point, at the very end will be one of two possibilities. One, we now finally know enough to be able to fully predict a biological organism's behavior and decision-making. The other, we actually have all of the data, and it turns out, guess what? We still have free will. We, there's something in there we, we, that is just, it comes from the ether, and we can, we can choose. <laughs> um, you like that, Yeska? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it, it does touch up. Maybe what we need is the help of you know philosophers, really, because maybe you know we are really stuck in a way that that we can even understand. You know, what does causality really means? You know, the question. Maybe we we are stuck in a way that we don't understand some fundamental principles of our thinking. Right? That is really a major barrier that that, that we cannot cross. You know, unless there is a breakthrough, if there is a breakthrough. No. Well, and, and my, if, if I was imagining myself, this is back to the question of why, why am I studying the brain? Why am I a neuroscientist? Why do I care about consciousness? If I thought I was on the road that ended at determinism, if I thought I was on the road where, where I'm just 
I'm just going to spend my life incrementally increasing the amount of knowledge in the world that we have about the brain because I know that at the very end, it's all going to be explained. And it's all just going to be simple determinism and there isn't... I, I just wouldn't do that. Uh, like, I would find that extremely depressing. Yeah. And so, for me, the old, my, my great hope and the only way I can kind of keep going down this road is believing that I'm on the other one, the other path, which is that I don't care how many physicists come along and give their explanations for how the microtubules work and, and, and all these things. At the very, very end, there's still going to be something that, that we have, that brains have, that is unexplainable. And I feel like I have to be on that kind of faith-based path in order for me to justify doing what I'm doing. Otherwise, it's, it's, otherwise I'm a pinball machine. And all we're left with in that other ser- in that other view, that that dark path for me is, yeah, you've got consciousness. All that's good for is telling you a story about why why the machinery did what it did. It's not there's no reality there, right? So I want to come back to this image you had, Patrick, earlier that there's every person's a data set, and every person that dies is a, a, a data set that's lost. So to me, that I think of two things. And maybe you can separate them and talk about them each separately if you want, or maybe they go together. So one is, is that fundamentally underlying that view is a view that what I'm experiencing inside my head is not exactly what you're experiencing. True. And that's really beautiful and deeply troubling, right? It, it, it's, it, I have to start with the assumption, you do, it, you do as a scientist, that there's something, I'm not a data set of one. I have many things that are just like what you're thinking, and you can thereby figure out something about me. And this guy will have something to say about this because he's going at it in a very different way. But you'll have something to say about me because of your armchair that you're sitting in allows you to think not just about you, but about me. And yet, that might not be true. And similarly, what I think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I think of is the hard problem of consciousness is that we have figured out with our crummy little brains, this meat inside this weird bone called a a skull, we have figured out such extraordinary things about where we came from and how the world works. And we've changed our existence in all kinds of ways. But there's one thing we haven't, I mean, we're so close to figuring out everything, but the one thing we haven't figured out is how we're able to figure stuff out and experience it uniquely as an individual human being. Except for that, we kind of understand everything. And one view says, it's not my insight, I can't remember where I read it, is that so we basically understood nothing about what it is to be human, which is deeply, deeply beautiful and troubling, disturbing and magnificent. And at, at the end of your book, Patrick, you talk about this idea that we're trying to use the thing that we have, it's all we have, understand itself. Hopeless. Hopeless, right? Can't be done. Help me. (laughs) (laughs) So to one point about, we seem to have started to almost complete our understanding of other other fields or other disciplines. The history of science is littered with scientists uh, throughout the centuries who have said like, oh, well, there's nothing left to do. Right. Mid-1800s physicists, they, they quit. You know, they, they quit to run a sheep farm because they're like, well, physics is solved. We did it. Like, we've done everything. So I, I, f- I really believe that even humanity is at its infancy still. Like, we are, we're going to keep discovering things. I think what's remarkable, absolutely re- remarkable about biology, um, almost every time we've discovered something fundamental about the way that the world works, we find that biology has harnessed it in some capacity. Give uh, some examples you, you talk about in the book. Electricity. Like, like we didn't know about electricity, and I don't even know when we even knew it, but we've been electric beings the entire time. All life that, you know, that has neurons and has, has been exploiting batteries. We're, you know, we, we create, the reason we all need salt in our diet is because it creates a battery within us, right? So we've had batteries and electricity, um, our bodies have kind of understood, in order to catch a ball, you kind of have to have a model of, you know, how gravity, the approximate equation of gravity. Um, 
when people discovered quantum physical effects, it was also noticed that, you know, the, the retina can respond to a single photon, a single quanta of light, right? Like, like there's the receptors in our, between the kind of neurons in our brain, the neurotransmitters, there are receptors that can respond to a single individual quanta of information, right? Like every time we discover something, we find that the brain or a biological entity has taken advantage of it in some way. And so I actually have a lot of faith that, or an optimism that we'll keep discovering things. Chemists will keep discovering things. Um, uh, physicists will keep discovering things. And we will then look in the brain and be like, oh yeah, turns out we've been exploiting that as well. Um, to, to the other point about um, how every person we lose is a, is a lost data set, it sounds almost like I'm objectifying them, um, but you know, like I'm grinding them up into data. Um, what I kind of mean, and you're, you're right to, to focus on, there's, a, there's an underlying premise there, which is that our brains are different. And that's something I fundamentally believe. Um, so we know that there are kinds of like the, the basic perception of the world uh, in terms of how rich your mental imagery is. If you close your eyes and try to imagine something, there's a wide range of kinds of images and the richness and vividness with which we can imagine on the insides of our heads. Uh, Quite literally, some people, there's this beautiful interview I watched with someone who literally when he's imagining uh, uh, kind of designing something at work, he has to pull over to the side of the road because it interferes with his actual vision. His, his mental imagery is so strong. This guy's a chip design engineer, right? And that's no coincidence. His father was a bridge engineer. And he, hi he hires people. He strips them of their technology, gives them a chalkboard or a whiteboard and says, draw me the last thing that you worked on that failed. And the person has to, from scratch, draw an intricate chip design, right? Very few people can actually do this. In part, I think he's good at what he does because he can close his eyes and design on the inside of his head. Magnus Carlsen, the highest rated chess player in history, uh, was once asked what kind of chessboard he has at home. And he's like, I don't have a chessboard at home. He just plays in his head. He just practices in his head. There are people that don't have, and, and I would guess that just within this room, we have a huge variety of ability, I, I don't want to call it ability because I don't want to give it any kind of hierarchy. I, it, more is not better, less is not worse. But some people have nothing on the insides of their heads when they close their eyes. Some people have no images. Some people have no inner monologue. So um, some people cannot, like, some people cannot rehearse a song. Some people that are composers can compose in their mind, right? And, and, all of these things, to me, when I hear all of these pieces of what I consider to be data, um, I think of like Darwin, and I think of what it took to arrive at a theory of evolution by natural selection. It took understanding variation across the world, right? It took understanding that a finch, the finch beak is, there's 10,000 ways to make a finch beak. I would guess that there are more kinds of ways that there are to be human and conscious than perhaps there are species on this planet. There's variation across the insides of our heads. We don't have tools to describe it. Language is a terrible tool for this. Language did not evolve to accurately describe what's happening on the inside of our minds. It evolved to be good enough, right? P people can be with their partners their entire lives. And if you then ask, Oh, like, honey, do you dream in color? Just by the way, I just have curious. Do you dream in color? Finally, for the first time ever, they will realize that one of them has spent their entire life dreaming in color, and the other one has no visual images on the inside of their head. I would even ask this audience, does anyone here do you dream in color? Does anyone not? All right. I don't even know if I dream in color. That's the answer. <laughs> I had a very vivid dream about my father a couple nights ago, and... Um, I don't. I couldn't tell you whether it was in color or not. There's two. There's categorically two answers. One, of course, I do. What are you talking about? The other is I don't know. And this this it baffles people when they hear this. And this is just one example. To me, this is Finch beak variation, right? And so when I say every human that's that dies, we're losing a data set. What I kind of mean is like that species of finch is going extinct. And if we're going to have a theory of consciousness. I mean, one of, the, one of the hard things about the 
theory of consciousness, when we do ultimately have a unified theory, is that it has to explain everything. It has to explain when you're coming out of anesthesia and you get angry because you're, you're only some parts of your brain are awake. It has to explain the, every moment of everybody's life, whether or not they're, when they're hungry and they get their insulin gets low and they get cranky and then they've changed their, every fight that's ever happened between people, it has to explain that. It has to explain everything. And we're losing data every day, right? And yeah, about you, your question about the data, right? So I'm afraid the dead data, dead data is going to be lost, essentially, right? I mean, there may be some remnants of it, but second, it's very clear that I will never understand what it is to be Ross. I can only guess, you know, and I can only make some assumption. It's true, we have some mechanisms like theory of mind and mirror neurons, which sort of help me sort of understand a little bit about who you, you, you are. So, I mean, that's a question of whether, I don't think minds are going to be downloaded in the way that they will be eternal, right? We know that. And that the second issue is really that there probably is an absolute limit to that thing to understand itself. And, and that limit is ab- absolute. There's, so, there's something that we don't understand, but I, I, I don't believe that we will reach that stage that you are so frightened of, of, you know, complete mechanical understanding, right? right. You don't want right. that. You right. don't want something out no. there which is fuzzy, and then maybe, <laughs> you know, you can feel happy with it, okay? Yeah, I guess the... Um... <laughs> That would be the uh, a belief in God says there is such an imaginable thing, but it's not accessible to any human, so it may as well not be. Uh, Spinoza, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think probably hinted to that. Do you want to say something else, Patrick? I just like move, I just like continually moving in the direction of the unexplained. So whatever becomes explained, I... And hopefully it will remain not completely explained. Yes, yes. <laughs> My guests today have been Patrick Housie and Yitzchak Fried. Gentlemen, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.